Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Wow. I oh, am. Yeah. Live from the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios of OutlawRadioLive.com. Nestled in our secret bunker somewhere in the Los Angeles area. The following program is produced more or less with a lackadaisical attitude by Magic Matt Allen, well-known radio hero. I am the legendary Burl Bear, raised on records, born to rock and roll, rocking the cradle of the and blues. Sitting next to me, the man who I can never understand when he speaks, Mark C.G. Boyer. I have no idea what you're saying. <laughs> and I am well known as the man who always gets his woman. Last week on this program, I said to Mark, after Mark said to me, we got to get this woman. I said, I'm going to get this woman. And you know what? You got her. Got her. I'm so excited. Yeah. I just can't hide it. I've got that. What's her name? <laughs> the woman Alice K. Hill. Alice K. Hill. Not Alice K. Hill, but Alice K. Space Hill. Yeah, three three names. Three <laughs> Three. Three names. And one. she's in Kansas. Uh, hi there. Welcome to the show. Hello. Hello. That's quite an introduction. Yes. <laughs> Well, we, we, the woman the men on the radio wanted, <laughs> and we got you. And you're in Kansas, yes? Yes, sir, I am in Kansas. I'm in, in, sitting on top of a hill with nothing but blue sky and green fields all around me. Yeah, Kansas is one of the strangest states in the entire United States, I've discovered. Never been there, but I tried to write a true crime book about a case in Kansas one time and discovered something fascinating. Do you realize that under the Freedom of Information Act, if you want police reports, being as you're a taxpayer, you're entitled to them. In Kansas, if you ask for one, you get the cover sheet. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> we, we protect our own here, I guess. Yeah, no kidding. So I did obviously didn't write the book. <laughs> I'm not going through this aggravation. But you put 16 years into this book. It's a great book that everyone loves. Thank you very much. I, I did. It took quite a while, but I was living a very busy life um, while I was beginning it. Um, and so it was a start and stop event. But eventually I, I had a point in life where I could get it completed and and did so to my satisfaction. And now here we are. I'm so there, excited. There, no, so, so are we, because we were talking about the book last week, and if people didn't hear the show last week, they'll certainly hear about it today. Under a full moon, the last lynching in Kansas. Uh, it is a, I guess what you call a uh, historical, not hysterical, but historical <laughs> true, true, true crime book. Uh, first question I want to ask you is, this is the first question? Okay. Uh, we already asked you the first question, which is, are you in Kansas? So we'll move on to a second question, which is, how and why did you pick this case and what got you started? Well, the case got started for me actually as a child when my grandmother would warn us not to get into a car with a stranger or to take candy from a stranger, and she proceeded to tell us about a man who had kidnapped and killed a little girl, and it, that stuck in my head um, all the, through my life. And then in 2002, we purchased the 1907 Shirley Opera House in Atwood, Kansas. And as we were preparing it for the historic registry, I did a considerable amount of research for that. And during that research, I realized that the same story that my grandmother had told me had actually impacted that building. Uh, Richard Reed, who was the perpetrator, had brought the little eight-year-old Dorothy Hunter to the opera house for a meal just hours or so before he, he killed her. So when I realized that, I, I, I had a sudden um, passionate moment that said, I need to know more about the story. I'm I'm in the same space that that man and that little mm. girl were in, and I, I felt I had to find out more about it, and that's, that's how that story began. Wow. And that, that makes sense, makes perfect sense, something that stayed with you all your life, kind of resonated with you. Mark has a question for you. This is Mark Boyer. Yes. Uh, <clears throat> normally, when we, uh, when we have guests on, they have a case, and they talk about the case from the start to the finish. In, in this instance... You don't 
you don't talk about just the kidnapping and the murder and his subsequent uh, frontier justice. What led you to look further back in time to, con to, to bring context to the whole subject? Well, two things led me to that point. Number one, I wanted to know why. I wanted to know why the son of a farmer would have taken this little girl. That's all I knew was that he had done this. Um, as I began to uh, do further research, I found out that he was a repeat offender, that he had been arrested in Colorado in 1916, which intrigued me even further. And I went to Colorado to the archives and requested um, information on him. And I was given a photograph, his prison photograph. Right. And when I saw his... When I saw his photograph, mm -hmm. I was so struck by his expression of misery that I realized his story was just as important as the story of the little girl. Absolutely. And then, then that led me to, to think how many people were impacted by this event. Um, Rollins County, which is where the lynching occurred and where the murder occurred, it, it, these are very isolated, very rural communities, and it impacted people. It's still impacting people. Almost 90 years later, if, if you mention this case, people immediately know something about it. And, but I wanted to know more. I wanted to know why. I wanted to know how their lives coincided, and, and I wanted to know how other people were impacted by it firsthand. Mm-hmm. See, you are a natural-born, good, true crime writer. <laughs> uh, the, great Jack, the great Jack Olson, who was considered the, the dean of American true crime and uh, who became my close personal friend shortly before he passed away, said to me one day, says, any true crime book that only tells you about the blood, the gore, who killed who, and then what happened, says it's kind of a form of pornography. Unless you get behind that and do exactly what you did, he says, that's what makes for a great true crime book. So that's why you wrote a great true crime book. <laughs> well, thank you. And, and I did not want to emphasize the actual event. That, that was the part I least wanted to have to deal with. I wanted to understand what had led this man to commit this event and, and how did their paths cross. And it, the further I got into it, the more interesting it became and the more... Each individual family's stories became vital um, for the whole impact of of how these families ended up being involved in a in a mob lynching. So, what was this? Uh, give me the gentleman's name and what. His, his, excuse me. His his name was his full name was Pleasant Richardson Reed. Hmm. He he was named after his grandfather, Pleasant. Well, how pleasant. His life, however, and, wasn't pleasant, apparently. No, no, it, it wasn't, absolutely not. And much of what I wrote, obviously, had to be conjecture. I, I have searched hard and for many, many years to find as much truth, as much um, validity, as many, as many clues as I could find, and then I tied those together with my... With my storytelling, um, everything I wrote is very probable. Um, mm. I can't say it's actually factual, except that everything is based on factual details. But it's a, it's a yeah, there has to be a, a certain amount of not creative license, but but rather rational conjecture based it, on exactly. exactly what we know the, the foundation of what he experienced that affected exactly. him. So what was the foul show? So what is it in his life that impacted him so much? Well, when I saw his prison photograph, one of the things that struck me is that behind his ear there was a curved um, scar, and it looked to me like the imprint of a horse hoof. Hmm. And his father was a was a horseman. Of course, when they when they arrived in Kansas in 1881, that's the only mode of transportation they had. But his father became known as a as a horse doctor, as an auctioneer of horses, as, as an expert of horses. 
there's been a reason that this scar on the back of his head could easily have been caused by a, a horse kicking him, mm-hmm. which then could have resulted in a traumatic brain injury of some type. Right. So that's part of part of what I wove to explain why he was it, it, the the the, um, the story I was told when I was a, a child. When I asked my grandmother, why would a man do that to a little girl? She said, well, he was retarded. Now, today we don't use that word so often, but in in the 50s and 60s, that was an acceptable term. So he was known to be mentally deficient in some form, and so I knew that there was that basis. I knew that was a factual statement. Mm -hmm. Interesting that... um Research has shown that individuals who have a combination of, and I don't know if these other factors existed, of a traumatic brain injury coupled with any other form of uh, abuse, whether it's the psychological abuse, sexual abuse, or physical, can do that to a person, can put someone in that space. Now, do you know if he, that- if he had any other uh, of those factors? Was there any other abuse? Well- we, I don't know. I don't know exactly, except for the fact that I do know that he was socially ostracized. Mm-hmm. That, and this is from newspaper accounts where his whole family would be listed as having attended a, a celebration of some type. And even though he was still living on the farm, his name would not be listed as attending the event. So he was isolated from his own family he was isolated from the community which then oh, leads boy. a yeah. person to imagine how desperately lonely he might have been um and, again, and angry <laughs> angry yes all of those things well he has a, this is a perfect storm of exactly what the experts say can put someone in that lack of mind space of uh, social rejection isolation coupled with head injury abuse and the uh, that isolation in Kansas at that time, isolation must have been almost um, issued to everybody as part of their <laughs> lifestyle. It, it, it certainly was, uh, and yet, in a way, communities were closer because people had to rely on each other, and and there wasn't the um, technology that oh provides that social yeah. stimulus that we all turn to now. So, so to be isolated in a community where contact was vital for survival would have been even more distressing and and more damaging to a to a <clears throat> child, to a young boy, to a young man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, probably, especially going through puberty, it must have really been aggravating. It, it would have been horrid yeah, all the way through. Yes. Yeah. Who's he going to hit on there in that community? <laughs> That's right. That's very true. So you have all the sexual frustration of going through puberty, already isolated, ostracized, resentful, <clears throat> confused. What's wrong with uh, me? <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it all leads up to where where is he going to find his outlet? And, and so as a, a 53-year-old man, um, and then we, we need to add one more factor into this, moon, um, Bootleg liquor mm. was certainly a, a factor in his confession. He admitted to having purchased um, liquor in a neighboring town. So you add that into the mix, and you've got a very volatile situation. Yes, people who have people who have traumatic brain injuries should not drink alcohol, but they didn't know that specifically then. They do now. That, that, yes. That, yes. That, don't do that. You know, it's bad enough even if you've got a healthy brain to put alcohol in it. But if yours is damaged, you're really in trouble. Yeah, there were so many factors that as I was researching and reading personal accounts, I was able to interview um, some some ancestors and relatives that were impacted by this. And every, every story just began to be so important to tell. Um... There were so many layers and layers that came together into this culminating event that that the actual event itself, while while tragic and while horrid and while historic, being the, the very last lynching in Kansas, 
it was it was in a way to me the least of the big issues mm -hmm. it was it was the result of so many other areas i was keep trying to thinking about what would have been his personal emotional interrelationship with his victim of attraction anger resentment fear. well and 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 you know 10 people could have written this story and come with 10 different mm -hmm. avenues but I, I chose, and the reason I chose it, I, I chose that he was lonely and that he was looking for companionship and friendship. When, when he picked up the, the little girl, it was, it was an opportunistic event. He had, he had gone to get alcohol in a neighboring town, and he was on his way back to his farm where his family lived, and as he went through another town, the, the towns in Kansas along the railroads are like little beads on a chain, mm -hmm. and, and they're about every 20 miles apart or so. So he left one town, and as he was driving through the next town, he came across this little eight-year-old girl. She had, it was the last day of school, and she was walking home, and she realized she had left her lunchbox at the school. So she left her sister and her friend and said, I've got to go back and get my lunchbox. And that was the last they ever saw her. Mm. He, he just happened to come down that street and enticed her into his car. And he kept her out all night long. So from, from mid-afternoon, all through the night, all the next morning, he had her with him. But he was seen in public, and this is where that story began at the Opera House. He took her to a cafe in the Opera House and, and fed her a late breakfast, early lunch. She, she was seen by people, he was seen by people, and nobody felt there was anything out of place. So he had not, he had not hurt her during the night. Otherwise, it would have been pretty obvious right. to, the, to the people. But then, within an hour after that lunch, she was brutalized, dead, and buried in a haystack. So I'm, <clears throat> I, I'm, I'm wanted to, just to, I'm thinking about this uh, scenario. Was he drunk earlier in the in 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 the chain of events, or did he get I, drunk while they were in the cafe? I believe that it was. Throughout, I believe that he was he was probably drinking when he picked her up. And again, this is this is just my mm. oh, it, it was just, it, it's hard to explain. But and to another writer, you will you will understand when mm. when you're writing and you get into kind of a zone, right? And and the story tells the story itself. reveals yeah. itself <laughs> yeah. to you. Um, <clears throat> do you think he was capable of 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 this crime if he had been sober? He said in his confession that if it hadn't been for the liquor, he wouldn't have done it. And I'm kind of concur. Um, bad drunk. Yeah, bad drunk. Really bad drunk. Well, I think uh, you say the mood you're in is strengthened by the drug you take. And I think dealing with this gentleman, calling him gentleman, giving the benefit of the doubt then, that you have all these conflicting things. One, he wants a companionship. He's still a kid in many ways. Yes. And so here's this other kid. I mean, this is like fantasy fulfillment. I have a friend. We'll go to we'll go right. to breakfast together. We'll have fun together. But then also at the same time, scissor kind of simmering underneath this is anger and resentment and being pissed off that he didn't really have this in his life. Yeah. Yeah. So you have these two things going on at once. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're, it's, it's like you've read the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I write them, I read them, <laughs> and I, I research them, so I, you know, it's, uh, we're in the same field, you know. Uh, yes, yes. Well, and, and the other, the other aspect of, of the moonshine, the bootleg liquor, is that it was so highly intoxicating, it was actually, could create madness on its own. Anybody who's drank, bootleg moonshine whiskey knows that 
you are not of your own mind when you're drinking that. It's not like, you know, buying a bottle of Jack Daniels or something. <laughs> no, it's like uh, Jack and the entire Daniels family comes to visit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, not, not good for you, especially if you already yeah. have a head uh, brain injury. Yes, yes. Yes. Yeah, so, so uh, he so probably wasn't all... himself, or the worst parts of himself, or the parts that he usually kept under control or a lid on. Yeah. But uh, yeah. there's also that thing, and, and being as I'm nuts enough to have experienced it, because <laughs> I also had a traumatic brain injury. Is I that, see. Uh, yeah, <laughs> if you knew me, you would be very job. obvious. <laughs> That's <laughs> what they, they tease me around here. Is that you can get in a space where someone can say something very pleasant to you, and you assume it's an insult. Sure, sure. Yeah, the processing is all fouled up, and it's and it's not something you can control. That's right. And uh, yeah. at least at least in my maturity, semi maturity, being an elderly gentleman now, semi senile, is if I don't have my medication, they didn't have my medication in those days. In fact, they didn't even have it thirty years ago. I'll say, I'm warning you that as nice as you are to me, I might think you're insulting me. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know. And it's true. And there again, you you know, the social supports. There were absolutely no social supports, and um, and there was no one to put a stop to what would be clearly child abuse today. It was considered normal behavior in those hard, hard pioneer times. Children were supposed to be adults <laughs> at a very yeah. early age. They yeah. they had huge responsibilities. Um, it, it was it was a very very tough time for for people out yeah, here. And if they didn't have sheep, they'd use their kids. You know, be <laughs> <laughs> part of the expression. Uh, you know, the children should be obscene and not heard. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes, that, that that carried on very very strongly. And and whipping somebody was considered you know spoil the rod or uh, spare, spare the, the rod and spoil them. the child. Um, it, people forget that. That the sheep herder, when it uses his rod, doesn't use the rod to beat the sheep, but to gently guide them. Well, that's yeah. true, but they, uh, they'd they prefer to wham on them, I'm afraid. <laughs> wham. Yeah. See this friendly rod? <laughs> Bam. <clears throat> Come on, sheep. Get along, little sheepy. Yeah, sheepy, yeah. He said sheepishly. Bad boy. Anyway, <laughs> getting back to the story. Oh, bad. He's so bad. No, no. No, He's there. What was that movie, the Woody Allen movie, Everything You Wanted to Know About Sex and You Were Afraid, afraid to Ask, where Gene Wilder is last seen in an alley drinking woolite because he'd had an affair with a sheep? <laughs> Maybe that would. That'll, that'll do it. That'll ruin your reputation for sure. <laughs> yeah, it certainly will. Just do that one time and they never, like, never get over it. Well... <laughs> People still talk about it, just if you do it once. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, boy, I had that in my hometown, too. Uh, so they here's this guy. Like drinking sheep uh, abusers? Yeah. Serial oh, uh, <laughs> sheep abusers? <laughs> yeah, pulling the wool over somebody's eyes. In any event, this guy is damaged in shipping and handling. He's isolated, as is everyone in Kansas, except he's even more so. He's got more layers of isolation than my house has layers of insulation. So, <laughs> guy's in bad shape. This poor innocent little girl, I wonder what was going on in her well, head when this guy says, here, let me uh, keep you overnight. Even I mean, well, of course, I, I, I pursued her thought processes as well, and I, I used again the current events of that time. Hollywood was taking off, and children were wanting to run away and join the circus, and there was, there was a sense that their lives were dead end if they stayed in Kansas. Yeah. And so my my thoughts were that this little girl saw somebody who might give her a bit of an adventure. Nothing dangerous, nothing untoward, just a, something a little new and outside of her daily experience. And she had no idea, no idea what was going to happen to her. Well, of course not, especially if he buys her a nice breakfast, you know. Maybe she hadn't had a nice breakfast for a while. Who knows? Uh, when yeah, I was say, no, when I was came, a, she, go ahead. Miss. She came from a good family. She, it, her family was was a fine family. Um, uh, there was no no reason for her to really want to leave, other than just that childhood desire for 
Something for an exciting day to happen, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah, so I, the but again, this, it's, it's surmising, it's conjecture, but I put myself into her, mm-hmm. into her frame of mind and... Um, I, I just hoped I hoped I did justice to the event. Well, that kind that kind of a thought process of a predator or being in danger just didn't wasn't prevalent or didn't exist. Yeah, people didn't really think about that. No, so um, when I was a teenager, well, let's see, when when my sister had her first child, I was ten. I was a built-in babysitter, changing diapers and and watching the kid all day. When I when I got a car to drive. I was carting the neighborhood. I'm not kidding. Seven, eight kids in my station wagon to the movies or, you know, we had a go-kart place up at the end of the valley here. Um, and all they had to do was run into the house, say, Mom, uh, Sharon's brother's taking us out. And they'd give him 20 bucks and off we'd go. And you could have been some evil predator. Uh, no. I mean, no, I was you a nerdy, but you I was a nerdy uh, yeah. math major. No. <laughs> I mean, if you were someone else, you could have been someone else. But the, the times changed, you know. It, you just, you, yeah, that they, kind of thing they really have happen. changed. And, and, and one of the effects of this, of this event in Rollins County was that people had always felt completely safe before and suddenly their whole foundation had been rocked Mm -hmm. and they did not think that it would ever be the same again now there'd always been bad things happening around but not in their own backyard this way it totally tainted their entire impression of their environment yeah one, one of the people i interviewed said that that when when this occurred, they didn't want to walk to the mailbox anymore, which was something that they did every single day without a care, without a thought. But walking to the mailbox suddenly became a frightening experience. Yeah. It, uh, it was very, very impactful. Totally changed their perspective of their life and their environment. They it always did. felt it they really were did. isolated and safe. Now they were isolated and in danger. Yes, because suddenly... Suddenly, something could happen, and it could be a neighbor. <laughs> not not a stranger from some other community, but a neighbor. Yeah, they were probably right. <laughs> but nothing else horrible happened to those people, except for the fact they were traumatized. That's true. That is true. Um, the One other impact that I wanted to pursue was was for the people who were involved in the actual lynching, these were men who were farmers and ranchers and townspeople, and suddenly they were part of violently ending a, a man's life. And I knew that that had to have stayed with each and every one of those people. And in mm-hmm. fact, it was a criminal event. If, right. if they had, been I think it's against the law to lynch people. Um, I found a uh, a newspaper article. Uh, mob of 1,500 fades after Slayer of Child is lynched. And there's a, a, a sub-headline here that the Attorney General orders a probe of the hanging. Did you, have, yes. did you find anything about that? I couldn't. Maybe it was just empty words and nothing happened. There, there, were, there were four counties involved, and so all of the officials, the sheriffs, and the deputies were at risk of losing their jobs because of this. Um, so it, it, it was, uh, but no one ever was identified, ever. <clears throat> I, also uh, I didn't that. recognize anybody at the lynching except myself. <laughs> uh, exactly. I found yeah. a couple of, um, of general books on Kansas history, which uh, had some details on the case, and one of them was talking about a young boy who witnessed the um, the lynching, and at the time of the writing was still alive, um, but continues steadfastly to deny he recognized anybody who was there. Yeah, I found that fascinating. Well, you well, and go ahead. Go ahead. One, one factor of that is it was. Uh, it's a little. It gets a little confusing, but uh, Richard Reed was from the town of Rexford, which is in Thomas County. And when he was arrested first, he was put in the Thomas County Jail. 
But the Thomas County Sheriff felt that he would be wise to remove him from that jail. And instead of taking him east to Topeka, which is where he should have taken him, he took him west to an even smaller town, much smaller town of St. Francis, and put him in that courthouse, that jail. Mm-hmm. So, so this is a whole other county, that Cheyenne County. The murder had occurred in Rollins County. So we've got Sheridan, Thomas, Rollins, and Cheyenne County people involved in all of this. So it is possible there were there were strangers involved in the lynching that the local people might not have known. Ah. But there were there were also people who knew who they were too. Do you know this reminds me of is it, I think it's a Harry McLean's book? where you had a town bully who made everyone's life miserable and he was murdered. Oh, yes. <laughs> and, and we didn't see nothing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, when, one of the interviews interviewees that I had was with a woman who was in her late 90s when I talked to her. She's now since passed away. She was a young bride when this happened, uh, just newly married and a young a young bride. And she remembered it very clearly, and she said that in those days, if there was a if there was a mad dog, or if there was a rattlesnake, or if there was a horse thief, they knew how to take care of it, and they just did. Mm-hmm. And that that was her feeling about the lynching was that they took care of a problem, and it was over. Well, you know what's tragic though is in taking care of the problem, they scarred themselves. <clears throat> I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. They, in taking care of the problem, in quotes, they gave themselves another problem. Well, it is true. It, it is true, and and no, I'm not. I'm not condoning. But that was just the, the attitude of the time. That well, one of the one of the other factors in this is that capital punishment had just been vetoed by the governor, like very very shortly before this happened, and. Because they knew, because the community knew that he might be put in prison again, but he might get out again, they thought that won't happen on our watch. Yeah. It'll we're just being done with it. I found uh, another uh, news article or uh, um, a uh, information in one of these books on Kansas uh, uh, lynchings and history. Um, they uh, uh, they author talked to somebody who was a relative of someone who married into the sheriff's family and in discussions through the life uh, it was made clear that the the uh, the police knew uh, a good number of the people who were there at the lynching but they're not going to say it they're not going to no. prosecute these people no I, they, I think the direct quote was, you know, their children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren are alive now and everyone else is dead. What's the point? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it is true. There are still family members, you know, in all of these small towns that are directly connected. So, yeah. It becomes yeah. uh, the human stain. <laughs> uh, it stains their life. It stains their history. And it stains their worldview or their community view. And it is passed from generation to generation. You know, there's, there's a DNA marker for people who went through the Holocaust that it affects future generations. That the trauma is so intense that it's passed on genetically, the trauma. And that's quite interesting. That could yeah. explain uh, one of my cousins. Well, I wondered what would explain one of your cousins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, her... Um, uh, her mother was uh, a child uh, during the Polish occupation. And uh, never got over it. Oh, oh well. Um, she's, she managed to survive. <laughs> yes. Well, there's different levels of survival. And sometimes if your entire life is based on surviving, you have no life at all. Um, no, I think my Aunt Selena did fine. Oh, okay. Well, so here, I, I keep wondering about that poor little girl has this wonderful breakfast with the guy. I wonder what they did all day, all night. Maybe they played games. Who knows? He had a friend for a while. But the whole time he's having his friend, his resentments are building. You know, he's got, and he's getting more and more damage from the alcohol. 
I you know I can't help but wondering him have the the trauma, the horrifying thing of him suddenly turning on this child, doing yeah. what he did. Uh, he must have felt pretty dreadful about it himself. Did he? No, ever... I, it, it it's it's a very interesting confession that he makes. Um, what what he told the sheriff in Thomas County. Um, even more so, I, I backtrack just a little bit. Right. He actually turned himself in after he had buried her. He killed her. He he'd hidden her in a straw stack. He drove himself back to Thomas County, turned himself into the sheriff there, and spoke to the deputy and said, "I was kidnapped and forced to drive around all night by two men." And the deputy recognized that this man was obviously slow-witted. He reeked of alcohol, and he had blood on his clothes. That's and a good indicator deputy, there's something wrong. Well, the deputy sent him home. He brushed him off. He sent him home. And then they realized, they found out that there was a child missing in a neighboring town. And when that happened, they went directly to the farm and they and they arrested him, but his story was that he had been abducted by two men and forced to drive around all night long. Mm -hmm. Now, is that a man who's in his right senses? No, <laughs> no, no. So there's so many layers to this story, so many, so many quirks and twists, and um, and tragic, just tragic from start to finish. Now, once they arrested him, and it hits the newspapers rather sensational. I mean, this is, this is something so horrific that this town is, and these towns and counties had not experienced previously. It rocks them to the core. How much time lapsed between the notification, the public knowledge of what this man is alleged to have done and the lynching? Very, very short. He, he kidnapped her on a Thursday. He kept her out Thursday night. On Friday morning, she was last seen at the cafe. He killed her about an hour later. He turned himself into the sheriff late, late afternoon, mid-afternoon on Friday. They kept, they put him in jail Friday night, got his confession. They found the little girl's body on Saturday. On Sunday was her funeral. And Sunday night he was lynched. It all fits together. It's all very, very tight, and 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 the passions, the passions. You know, I, I considered it primal rage. Yeah. When, when when they heard what had happened, when they saw who had done it, they knew he had con had been convicted once before. They were flat done with it. Yeah, but they were like just the, done with it. Chasing the Frankenstein monster with their flaming torches. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and to, it, this is a funny thing. You had mentioned that as a child watching the Frankenstein movie, mm -hmm. I tended to side with the Frankenstein. Movie. <laughs> I know they do that on purpose. Well, that yeah, he was the anti-hero. Yeah, and the, the mob were the bad guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it, uh, intolerance uh, and uh, you know, I had not thought, not thought of that movie for many decades. <laughs> yeah, it, it's um, it it greatly deviates from the novel. Well, yeah, we don't care about that. But, you know, the, it's a much different. The book, the book is much more detailed on on the intolerance of, but, uh, of the of the of the group. But I mean, the thing is, in in that story and the one that was done in the film is he throws the little girl in the water. He kills her. It's not that he has any animosity towards her. He's you know, she's thrown flowers and he runs out of flowers, so he throws her. Uh, <laughs> except she. Yeah, yeah, there's some similarities here. I had not. I had not. Uh... I had not made that connection. I'm, that's a very interesting observation. I'm, yeah. So uh, they, it's almost like an exorcism for the community. They're going to take care of this, this antibody. You know, they're the antibodies to the infection here. Uh, they're going to, yeah. they're going to get rid of him, and they'll be just fine. Unfortunately, yeah, when, that them doing that made it even worse. Yeah, they were they were not fine. They were not fine, and they're still dealing with it. Um, it's it's still raw. Eight, um, Eighty, almost ninety years later, it's still raw. So the um, did uh, did the victim uh, live in a home or on a on a farm? 
Uh, they live just right outside of town. Now, now Selden is a very small town. It's never, never been big. And and um, in 1932, you know, they were facing already the the entrenching of the Dust Bowl, and they the Great Depression was was well underway. The community has never been affluent by any means. It's it's a hundred percent agricultural related. Right. And with with the dust bowl the there were no crops. It was it was a tough, tough time. But they did her home was just right on the outskirts of town. Well uh, where I'm heading with this is um under normal circumstances a child would think maybe my family would be concerned that I didn't come home. I mean, it, oh, yeah. So um, I'm I'm wondering, was there any any real means for her to contact her family if during the night she wasn't in any immediate danger? Uh, no. You know, telephone. No. Was there any way Tele- for her to get work? I'm sorry. Telephones were very very new in the area. Um, the rural telephone system. The majority of farms did not have telephones yet, um, but there was a there was an outcry. There was a, a community search for her that night. That the Thursday night she was reported okay, so missing, the f- and the word got out, and people began searching. But they had no. I mean, this is huge. You're talking thousands of acres of potential direction they could have gone. Right. Um, and and so they they had no luck at all even knowing what direction they might have gone. They didn't even know where she was. She, they had no idea she was even with somebody else. Right. They, they just didn't know. Yeah, and <clears throat> which leads me to, to, to wonder if maybe she wasn't in any position to get away and or attempt to contact her family. May, may, you know, yeah. it maybe it appeared that everything was okay when, when they were having brunch. But she was still probably, um, she may have been afraid or incapable of doing anything at that point. Oh, absolutely. That's certainly a factor. Uh, yes. And, and one, of, one of my concerns for this story to be told is if somebody had thought to themselves, that doesn't look right. That little child looks frightened. That man doesn't look like he belongs with her. And if somebody would have spoken up at that moment, three things would have happened differently. She would not have had to die. He would not have murdered her. So, you know, he he had that trauma on top of his own trauma. And there would have been no lynching, which impacted the the entire community. So at that point, she had not, she, she still could have been saved, and so could he. And that's one of the strongest themes that this book, I hope, will do, is compel people to step up, even if they're wrong. You know, if you're wrong and you say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, everything's good, this child's fine, you're her, you're her uncle, it's all great, great, my apologies. But if not, if we could, if we could prevent one thing in our, in our own personal lives, then good for us. Wow, it's it. Uh, fa- I mean, this this whole story fascinates me, and the different layers to it, which is why I was so eager to have you on the show. We were talking about it last week, and uh, hopefully, this whole people buy the book. I got to mention the name of the book again: Under the Full Moon, correct? And uh, yes, it is under a full under a full moon. The last lynching in Kansas, and it is available right now. You can own it. You can buy it, read it, believe it, and. Uh, Paperback or as an ebook from Wild Blue Press, the same great press that publishes many of my newer works. So, and their olive oil is fabulous. <laughs> yes, their olive oil. Yes, because they're a press. Oh, they're a press. Well, we don't like people who are oppressive. So, <laughs> I, am, I feel sorry for you. And yeah. If you do any uh, any other uh, interviews, uh, because the uh, others. Uh, uh, that do this this kind of show. Now don't say anything bad about him. Oh no, they're just uh, they're just you know uh, Sergeant no bad Friday. Jokes. No just bad the jokes. facts, man. 
Yeah, they don't. Ha they don't have any fun with the material. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to have fun with a murdered child. Well, he did, but I mean, <laughs> normal people don't have fun with a murdered no. child. The family. Well, I, I, do, I do want to thank you very, very much for, for your support and for your encouragement. Um, you know, this is, this is a, a big event in my little life, and I truly <laughs> appreciate Well, you know, a good, good book is a good book, and fantastic research, fantastic research. And you yeah. spent 16 years uh, taking time out of your busy schedule of alternatingly going bankrupt and buying uh, old opera houses or whatever it is you do in your spare time. <laughs> No, it doesn't make much sense, does no, it? No, <laughs> I, I was reading your life story and going, oh, this is really weird. <laughs> well, 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 we're out there I... milking those cows and uh, putting up fences and going broke and uh, buying an opera house. And uh, Your you husband know, must be know, a very patient I... man. Uh, um, people in Kansas are tenacious. That's, yeah. That's, the, that's what we are. We are tenacious. We might get kicked down, but we don't stay down. <laughs> have you read What's the Matter with Kansas? I have. <laughs> Well, what was your dad? <laughs> Excuse me. The, the, you know, there's Kansas is a very challenging state. It has always been challenging, but it is so full of opportunity, so full of potential, and it it's a beautiful place to live. Um, and we have very few people. And in my county right now, there are absolutely no cases of the virus. So wow. there you are. I think I'll move that's there. Cause, <laughs> that's because there's not very many people we are. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, social distancing has pre-existed in Kansas since the dawn of time. It certainly has. This, this is old hat here. All right, I think Kansas but is, might be one of the uh, one of the states that Abdu'l-Baha said called a breath of life state <laughs> in that the breath of, of light they hadn't hit Kansas yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, there's good and bad to that, certainly. <laughs> so, um, you know, when you were growing up, um, did you uh, travel a lot with your father from base to base? Was uh, well, I, I, was, um, I was born in Paris, France. My father was Air Force. But uh, we lived in Virginia and in Florida. But Every summer I spent uh, in in Kansas, in Atwood, with my grandmother. Uh, so, um, no, no, I, I no off the United States. You weren't off uh, in foreign country bases. Right. Once, once I came to the United States, I didn't leave again. Fascinating. There she was, trapped in Kansas. <laughs> I had a friend of mine from well, Kansas, a friend of mine from Kansas, uh, lived to be 102 years old. Yeah, yeah. If you make it out here, you're tough. And uh, his memory, when he was 102, his memory was still perfect. And his <clears throat> father had known Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> and you know, I'd ask him questions, because he was about 102, and I'd say, uh, Kenneth, I said, have you ever been sick? Because I'd never seen the guy sick. He goes, I believe I had a touch of influenza in 1906. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. <laughs> there you are. Yeah, he's a tough, tough guy. But he'd always talk about, uh, but there he was in Kansas, and Kansas was Kansas. <clears throat> See, now that you, now that you finally finished this, put it to bed, so to speak. Um, do you think that you have uh, more uh, true crime in your future, or is this a, it's a one and done? It, it, there's a possibility. I do have a working uh, outline in progress uh, about another historic true crime event um, in the same county, Rollins County, but it's too soon to know whether that will will come to completion or not. But it, I have something perking on the stove. Not Very good. nice. <clears throat> Plus, you're also writing grants, and you must be a grant wizard. <laughs> well... <clears throat> One of the things about living in a very rural area is that it opens up opportunities for grants. It gives you extra points if you're underserved by everything. Yeah. <laughs> so that helps. But, um, but yes, grant writing is important. And you certainly um, managed to keep your family going with that. Bet your, your happy hubby was enthusiastic about your talents. Thank you, dear. He, you he, saved the farm again. He's a good fellow. He, I, we, we, are, we make a good pair. We do well. So is he out there on the uh, North 40 uh, stringing barbed wire or something? Well, he has been working pretty much all day, yes. Uh, yeah, I kind of like that. I'm from Walla Walla, Washington, which is a small agricultural community. 
Oh, sure. No, that's a beautiful area up there. Yeah, Blue Mountains and all that, and the Woodland mm. Massacre. <laughs> crazy, crazy nut job disc jockeys. Yeah, that's me. Hey, what, have anything, <laughs> anything good come out of Walla Walla? Yeah, lots of good stuff. Uh, so I can identify with that. Uh, interesting is that when the Depression came and the uh, stock market crashed and all that, uh, being a small agricultural community, it was one of the only places in the entire state that the banks didn't close. Uh-huh. It's, uh huh. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's significant. Yeah, how's the prostitution situation in Kansas? How's the what? <laughs> prostitution in Kansas. The reason I bring that up is that Walla Walla, Washington, a small agricultural community, had houses of prostitution, perfectly legal, uh, even when I was a young a youngster, young man. Uh, and that was because they'd bring in uh, people to work on the uh, ranches, the farms. You know, yes. And the the uh, the families of the uh, ranchers, the farmers, wanted uh, prostitution because they didn't want the guys hitting on their daughters, etc. And they were worried that if they got rid of the houses of prostitution, then these guys would be hitting on their kids. So yeah. uh, the wives yeah. uh, lobbied heavily to keep prostitution in the town. Which they did up until the uh, mid-60s. Well, Kansas is a pretty conservative state. I don't think they would have embraced that concept, but I can certainly <laughs> see the rationale behind it. Well, you know, they had the, the, the opportunity of having either the state college or university or the state penitentiary there. The opposite of the <laughs> penitentiary. Because if there's going to be any young men coming to town, they want them locked up ahead of time. <laughs> And for those who weren't locked up ahead of time, make sure they got an outlet over there at the Rose Rooms. You know. Goodness. My my brother, who's very famous and well respected, was the only student in the Walla Walla High School who had a charge account at the uh, prostitution houses. <laughs> he was quite an adventurous young man. I say. Sounds like it. Yes. Yeah, he he did get arrested temporarily by the police because the madam called the cops because he would get drunk and bring his dates there to show him how real women did it. <laughs> so that was kind of problematic. But uh, that was Walla Walla in those days. What's the, uh, what's the name of the book, Burl? Uh, book Under the Full Moon, The Last Lynching in Kansas, available from Wild Blue Press. You can order direct from Wild Blue Press or from Amazon or Barnes & Noble or Books A Million or wherever you get your books. But I would strongly suggest you buy it in either uh, paperback or ebook. Probably be an audio book of it also. Uh, buy it, yes. enjoy it. It's a fabulous book from everything I can tell about it. And uh, I'm really impressed with your level of research and the way you put things together that I've seen so far. So congratulations. I think your 16, you years, 16 years of work have paid off with an excellent book. Thank you very, very much. I'm, I'm honored to be on your program. I, well, I do appreciate it. Few people say that, so we'll take that hard. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for joining Thanks us. again for joining us. Hey, Burl. What? What's next? Magic Matt Allen and the Demons of Decadence live from the Light of Lounge at OwlerRadioLive.com.